I want to say two things really quickly. We never have boring announcements, and I think it's, and I'm not, I'm not including myself in that, um, but the fantastic teams that we have that give announcements, they make it fun. You're not just reading off a script. Katie, Kelly, the O'Connor clan in the back, you know, it's like the dream teams of all of that. So you guys are well-informed, but you're also well-entertained uh, hearing what's going on in the life of our church. Um, well, I hope you guys are doing well. My name is Gus. If I haven't met you, uh, I would love to meet you. Um, we are continuing in our series in Ruth. We're almost done. And I want to thank Mark. I want to thank Levi, uh, Dr. Lyons. Uh, they led us in walking through Ruth's story so far. And, you know, I know some of the things that, that we've learned, some of the things that we've seen, especially last week, uh, haven't always been the most pleasant things. Um, but I hope you've been encouraged, as encouraged as I have, um, to see how in the midst of suffering, in the midst of sorrow, God is still present, and his love is a sure foundation for his people. Um, as we were thinking through this, one thing that kind of came to mind to me is that sometimes it's the subtle sovereignty of God that speaks just as loudly as when he shouts and shows off his omnipotence. And as we've gone through this series, we've asked two very important questions. Number one, if we turn our backs on God, does he turn his back on us? And I think as we've gone through this story, the answer is a resounding no, although sometimes it's difficult to see it. And then number two, is it possible that God ordains sorrowful tragedy to set the stage for surprising triumph? And I think as we will see today, the answer to that is also a resounding yes. Well, I don't know about you, but I've thought about one thing very repeatedly as we've walked through Ruth. Apollo 13. Now, I am a self-professed NASA nerd, okay? If you don't believe me, my wife Jessie and I on our second date went to the Space and Rocket Center in Huntsville, Alabama because Jessie wanted me to, to pick out something that was very important and meaningful to me. About 10 minutes in, I could tell that she was not as into NASA as I was. <laughs> and she still married me. So Apollo 13 is one of my favorite movies, um, and it's also one of my favorite stories. I wasn't alive when the events portrayed in the movie took place, but I've listened to, I've read, I've watched just repeated things about it. April 11th, 1970 was supposed to be a day like any other day for the astronauts as they had rehearsed over and over and over again in the previous months for the mission that they were going to take to the moon. It would be the third mission to the moon. But it was actually the beginning of the longest seven days of their life. Because of an oxygen tank that failed two days into the mission, thousands of miles away from Earth, and oxygen's quite important, Jim Lovell, Fred Hayes, and Jack Swigert found themselves thousands of miles, thousands of miles away from the Earth, knowing, not knowing what would happen. They knew they wouldn't land on the moon, but more importantly, they didn't know if they'd make it safely back to Earth, back to their families, or everything that they now suddenly longed for so deeply. They were suddenly helpless, and they were depending on NASA scientists, engineers, and fellow astronauts to devise a way for them to get home in their crippled spacecraft. Now, if you have not seen the movie, take two hours and 20 minutes of your life and go get it. It's got Tom Hanks in it, okay? That's all you need to know. I won't spoil the rest of it for you, but you'll thank me later, I promise. But this morning, as we arrive in chapter four of Ruth, the climactic event of this story begins to occur. 
Everything that we have seen so far, both the good, both the bad, all the difficult stuff in between has been leading to this moment. And what we look at today will not only resonate with Ruth and Naomi as we see their redemption, but my hope is that it will also point us to the redemption that we have in Jesus. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Ruth chapter 4. We'll be in the first 12 verses today. And if you don't have a Bible uh, this morning, if you don't own one, um, at the end of our service, stop by our Connect Point in the back. Um, We usually have some back there. We'd love for you to take one as a gift. Uh, If not, go find Levi. He says he has tons of Bibles everywhere. And you can just, you know, tell him that Gus said, give me a Bible. All right. Now, as we dive in this morning, I want us to see three big ideas, okay? The three big ideas are this, Boaz's plan for redemption, the price of redemption, and the blessings of redemption, right? And then the three uh, encouragements I want us to take away afterwards from Boaz's example that can help us point uh, point us to Jesus, okay? I want us to take away three encouragements this morning as well. Uh, But before we jump in, let's pray again. Heavenly Father, you are so good to us, and it is so good to be in your house with your people this morning. I'm so encouraged by the faces I see, uh, so encouraged by the singing I've heard, just by being around fellow believers. It's just such a, a, a beautiful encouragement to the soul. And I feel so unequipped to proclaim your word this morning, but I remind myself that these people don't need to hear from me, they need to hear from you. So I would just ask that you speak through me this morning, that your Holy Spirit would just speak to our hearts and our minds and encourage us as we look at Ruth's story once again. You are a good God, and we love you, and we thank you for Jesus Christ. And we ask all this in his name. Amen. All right, so we're going to jump in. First thing I want us to see is Boaz's plan for redemption. We're going to be in the first two verses here. Here's what it says. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And then Boaz took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. All right. So we have left off in Ruth's story where Ruth was taking matters into her own hands in a good way. And telling Boaz, asking Boaz to please redeem her in a very private scene between the two of them on the threshing floor. Mark preached on that last week. And yeah, you had to be very delicate with that. And so I appreciate that. Uh, But this morning, or when morning comes in the story, Boaz then makes a beeline for the city gate. Now, this is going to be important to understanding what's about to happen. Where Boaz is going is is just as significant as the reason he's going there. Cities historically had walls around them for protection, and those walls had a gate, like you can see kind of in the picture, where in between people could pass in and out of the city. This was most commonly a sort of marketplace uh, where people would bring their produce and other items to try and sell to people throughout the city, but it was also a place that acted as a town hall or a courthouse for the city. You can kind of see, uh, you can kind of see there some little makeshift benches where people would gather and sit. Elders could sit and witness transactions. They could decide legal cases at this location. And this is not something that Boaz doesn't know. He is going to a very public place because he has a plan and he needs witnesses. Now, we also in this uh, section see the arrival of the Redeemer. This is the one of whom Boaz had spoken to Ruth about back in chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. He reminded Ruth that there was one in line in the family that was closer than him. 
But if that man would not redeem Ruth, then as God is his witness, Boaz was the man for the job. Boaz is fully aware that he does not get first dibs here. But as you read through that, did you notice anything interesting about the Redeemer there? What does it not tell us about the Redeemer? His name. Exactly, Lee. I heard that. It doesn't tell us his name. It doesn't say it at all. It's not mentioned here or in chapter 3 where he's referenced there. All we have in the original Hebrew is a phrase. Poloni Almoni. Now, before you go and name any future kids that, there's some significance to that phrase. It's used in the scriptures and in their language when one wants to conceal information deliberately. It's kind of like our John Doe in today's language. But essentially what's going on here is the narrator is giving the readers, the hearers of this story, some little context clues about what's going to happen here soon. And we'll, we'll come back to that later. But for now, all you need to know is that Poloni Almoni can be referred to of as What's his name? Mr. So-and-so, John Doe. We don't have his name. But we do see Boaz. We see the Redeemer in this scene. And then Boaz actually calls 10 elders to all sit down together. And then Boaz, who has this immaculate plan for redemption here, starts into the specifics of the transaction in verse 3. Then Boaz said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech, or Elimelech. I'm not a Hebrew scholar, so if I mispronounce them, I apologize. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I'll redeem it. Doesn't take him long. Boaz explains the situation to the elders here. He explains the situation to the Redeemer. He reminds them of Naomi's return from Moab, something they likely already knew. But he also goes on and he tells them about this land that belongs to Elimelech. Naomi is likely selling this land because she can no longer afford it. And in order to keep it in the family, a kinsman redeemer must purchase it. That's something that we've heard, that phrase, that topic, that idea of a kinsman redeemer or a goel, someone in the family line that comes along and and redeems property, redeems a person, marries someone. We'll get more into that as well as we go on today. But Boaz is letting the redeemer and he's letting all these people know this uh, situation and he's specifically telling the redeemer to give him first rights to purchase it from her. Doing so likely allows Naomi to continue living in Bethlehem, so it it rescues her, provides redemption for her. It would probably also give her some semblance of hope for the future, allowing her to return to whatever a normal life might have looked like for her moving forward from this. But it doesn't just benefit Naomi. It also benefits this Redeemer. It benefits him by giving him an opportunity to do a couple of things. First, if he purchases this land... He acquires more wealth and status. Now, yes, he purchases it, so he loses some money in the sale of it, but he now acquires land, and probably like uh, our buddy Boaz, he probably owns land and works it. This is a good thing for him. He could also work this land instead of Naomi, let her live on it, and doing that also probably allows Naomi to live here for the remainder of her life. 
This probably accrues him not only wealth and financial status, but this accrues him prominence and stature in the city. You know, those elders who are all gathered around here, maybe this gives him an opportunity to move into a spot like that one day. Wouldn't you just love to adjudicate legal cases? If that's you, go for it. He would be a hero to Naomi and her family, and he'd be a hero to everyone else around him. It honestly doesn't take him that long to say he's going to redeem it. He doesn't have to sit there and think about it. He's not like walking back and forth. He's not sitting there going, oh, no. He says it immediately when he hears that land. And for many of us, we think that's the end of the story. But it's actually only the beginning of it. Let's look at verses 5 and 6, and we'll then see the price of redemption. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. The plot thickens. Boaz starts this whole transactional redemption thing out with the land. It's actually quite genius, if you think about it. Because, you know, this guy, he sees dollar signs, maybe. He sees the idea of getting more land, more status. But Boaz just flipped the script on this guy. He leads with the land transaction, which sounds easy enough to make happen. You buy a house, you sell a house, you buy some land, all that kind of, like, great, no big deal. And in fact, the Redeemer seems all too eager to make that happen. So what could possibly change this thing to make him change his mind so suddenly about going through with this? Well, I'm glad you asked. We need to go back and look a little bit deeper at this idea of leveret marriage. Now, again, as we've gone throughout this, this book, we've seen the idea of a kinsman redeemer. We've seen the idea of, of leveret marriage brought up. You've heard Mark, you've heard Levi, you've heard Dr. Lyons mention this concept and unpack details little by little throughout this series. It's almost as if they're trying to tell you that that's going to play a prominent role here. We've already seen with this idea, with this concept, that when a man dies and, he and his wife had no children his brother would then be permitted to marry the widow with the hope of producing an heir with her to help continue the family lineage. We've also seen that if a brother was unable or unwilling to marry the widow, then it would fall to the next closest eligible relative. Mark aptly describes this last week or described it last week as a social safety net for the people of Israel during that day. So why would a redeemer suddenly turn down the opportunity to be a redeemer and play hero? For Naomi and Ruth. Well, it's actually going to come down not to what he was going to gain, but what he stands to lose. You see, Leverett marriage deals with continuing a family's lineage, but it also deals with the inheritance that the children would stand to gain. Notice the Redeemer here, who's not named, Poloni Almoni, as we've called him. He's concerned with impairing his own inheritance. He's concerned with everything that he stands to lose. Now, there is a few things here that we can consider. If this redeemer already has kids, and then he has a child with Ruth, then the inheritance that he already has, and any inheritance pertaining to Ruth's widowed, uh, Ruth's husband, Mahan, um, and his heir, would potentially be split between this redeemer's current kids and her kids. Okay, so tracking so far. 
all right? But what happens if this redeemer has no child of his own? Everything he has already built up for himself, dude is, he's, you know, he's straight out of college, he's working, or he's, you know, straight out of trade school, he is doing well. And he has built up likely land, inheritance for himself that he is hoping to give to his kids one day. But if he marries Ruth before ever having kids of his own, and he bears a son with her, then his inheritance, all of it, goes with that child and his family, and Ruth's family. It leaves his. So all of a sudden, the stakes are changed. It's a little bit more tricky. It's a little more, it's a little more evil. He is, he is telling him that he is not willing to possibly impair what he could, he could give to his kids down the line. It's that important to him. And if you think about it, it's almost kind of like our rich young ruler when he talks to Jesus. He's acquired great wealth for himself. He's built up all this, this, this prominence and status. And Jesus says, hey, go sell all you have and give it to the poor. Give to the poor and you will find treasure in heaven. But everything he had built up here on earth was too much for him to give up. And he went away sad. Well, at this point in the story, the narrator brings us back and kind of gives us a little bit more context and history into the custom around redeeming uh, and exchanging here. Now, remember, this is a transaction. Ruth, uh, not Ruth, Boaz has gathered all these people together. He's happening in public. And they're going to they're gonna walk us through identifying what happens to make this transaction official or, in this case, why it wouldn't be happening. So look at verses 7 and 8 here. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Okay, so he takes off his chaco, he gives it to, to Boaz, and he's like, hey dude, I'm not doing this, can't do it, it's yours, it's yours if you want it. So he's indicated he wouldn't proceed. He tells Boaz to buy it for himself and he takes off his own sandal. And this is what tells them, you know, hey, this is actually, I'm giving this up officially. I'm giving it over to him. Things are on the up and up. It's all good. Now, the act of taking off the sandal is something that is also part of the laws and instructions surrounding leveret marriage. Now, we get the part where Polonia Almoni is taking off his sandal, giving it to Boaz. And he's saying, you know, I'm giving him permission to do this. That's easy. But your homework, I'll give you a sneak peek of it here, but your homework for the pop quiz next week is to go home and read Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10. But verses 7 through 10 of that actually give us some background for what happens when someone refuses to go through with a marriage to his widowed sister-in-law. Here's what Deuteronomy tells us. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, Then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. Those are fighting words. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull off his sandal from his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. Ooh, fiery language. 
But what you're seeing in this passage is an appeal process where the brother who is obligated to marry his deceased brother's widow, this woman would take him to the gates, bring this issue before the elders. Again, we want witnesses here. And if he persists in refusing to marry her, there was this shaming ritual where the woman would take off his sandal and spit in his face. Now, at this point, half of this room right now is like, whew, they're loudly cheering this woman on. How could you do this to her? And another half is probably thinking, like, really bad for this guy. Like, dude, you got spit in the face. And in, in the last two years, that is, that's a really dangerous thing. But the thing we need to remember about this situation, the redeemer in this story isn't Mahlon's brother. Remember, Mahlon's brother's dead too. His brother would have been the one who was obligated. And he doesn't, he's, he's, he's not around. And so Leverett marriage, the way it works is the obligation falls to the brother. This man isn't actually obligated to do it. So he removes his sandal and tells Boaz to proceed since he can't. Maybe he's already married. Maybe, you know, he's just, again, doesn't want to lose what he's already built up for himself. But in a moment where the price of redemption was too high for one man, it wasn't even a concern for the other one. Think about Boaz. Remember what we know about him? He's got a lot of wealth. He's got a lot of status as well. But our boy Boaz... He's pretty smitten right now. He's pretty taken by the beauty of Ruth, by the character of Ruth. He's willing to lose everything that he has in order to make this woman his wife, in order to help perpetuate her family's line, her her widowed husband's line, or dead husband's line, excuse me. And that leads us into the last point this morning, and that's the blessings of redemption, starting in verse 9. Then Boaz said to the elders of all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Hilion and to Mahlon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Mahlon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthy, uh, worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz immediately declares his intention to purchase this land from Naomi likely providing her enough money and maybe a house to live in the rest of her life. And then he also declares he's going to buy Ruth to help her perpetuate the name of Mahlon, to keep the family line going and provide an inheritance for a future heir. He permanently compromises his own wealth to purchase her, to purchase this land, to redeem them. There was so much he would lose financially by doing this, and he doesn't even bat an eye. Man, how great is that kind of love that he displays there? 
Now, in, in verses 11 and 12, we get this threefold blessing that helps describe what's happened to lead to this moment. It gives us a little bit of a history lesson, a way for us to remember all that God has done. So we'll look at these really quickly. Uh, blessing one in verse 11, it says, May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. This is a reference to the two women, Jacob's wives, who together birthed the 12 sons who would become the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. So in other words, this is a blessing that Ruth may bear a son and their house would be built up and endure. So it's this blessing of fertility, a blessing of you know, the family line continuing on. Blessing two, they say more so to Boaz, may you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. So this is language of honor and wealth. Remember, he has just sacrificed immensely to redeem this family. And they're saying, may the Lord bless and honor that. Now, blessing three is the one that's a little bit tricky. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Now, this blessing is a little bit different. It refers to a very sad story in Genesis 38. Maybe you're familiar with it, maybe not so much. But we have Judah, who is one of Jacob and Leah's sons, head of the tribe of Judah. And he has a son named Ur, who marries a woman named Tamar. Then Ur dies. And like our story today, Leverett marriage kicks in. And Onan is the next son, and he's supposed to marry Tamar and provide an heir. But he disobeys, and he dies. Then Shelah, the next oldest son, is supposed to marry her. Again, you see this idea next in line. But at this point, Shelah is supposed to marry her, but Judah thinks it's not actually like his sons that are the problem. He actually thinks it's Tamar. Um, so he thinks she's maybe cursed. So instead of you know, kind of going on with this, he's like, not, not, not happening. So running out of options, Tamar actually tricks Judah into getting her pregnant so that she can have a son who ends up being Perez. Now, why does Perez play into this blessing? Well, it's funny you should ask that. Perez, Perez is Boaz's great, 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 four greats grandfather. So this story is all happening in Boaz's line. This is part of Tamar's redemption just as much as it is Ruth and Naomi's. You see, men had repeatedly sorry, failed to step up and become the redeemer for Tamar. They had repeatedly done that. So she took matters into her own hands. Remember we heard that last week? Sometimes you have a really good idea, but you go about it in a really bad way, and it doesn't end up working out generally very well when it comes to God. But where men had repeatedly failed to step up and become the redeemer for Tamar, Boaz is stepping up and he is becoming a redeemer, not only to Ruth and to Naomi and Elimelech's line, but also for his own family's line. Man, isn't that funny how God does stuff like that? <laughs> God takes something that was so sad, so disturbing, and he turns it around on itself for his glory and the good of his people. You know, he, he does that a lot. It's really good when he does it. And in doing so, Boaz is actually pointing those of us gathered here today, not merely to himself, but he's pointing us who have gathered here today to Jesus, our Redeemer. 
Now, I said the, the final point this morning were the blessings, plural, of redemption. And all of this most certainly involved the redemption of Ruth and Naomi. But there is so much for us to be encouraged at when we look at how Boaz is pointing us to Jesus here. So I want us to see three encouragements uh, from this. Here's encouragement number one. Boaz and Jesus willingly provided redemption. And I underlined and emboldened and italicized that word willingly. Boaz was not obligated to provide redemption to Ruth and Naomi, yet he willingly purchases their redemption, their hope, and their future. Jesus, God the Son, who has created us and knows both the very best about us, our giftings, our skills, uh, the things that make us tick, and knows the very, very worst about us, willingly endured a criminal's death on our behalf to bring us into his family and make us right with a holy God. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21 tells us, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us this ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making an appeal through us. And we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. He didn't make him to be a sinner. He made him to be the curse, sin itself. He put all of it on Jesus so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or, think about John 10, 18. Jesus himself. We just walked through John's gospel. No one takes my life from me, that being the it there, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. None of this is because of our worthiness, but it is because of his hesed, his loyal, faithful, covenant-keeping love. Christ willingly died for you, believer, to make you right with God. Just like Boaz willingly went to the city gate and purchased redemption for Ruth and Naomi. So number one, Boaz and Jesus both willingly provided redemption. Encouragement number two, Boaz and Jesus publicly provide redemption. Boaz was following the laws given to provide redemption and went to the people to purchase redemption for Naomi and Ruth. Jesus went to the cross, not hidden from the crowds, but in front of them, being publicly mocked, scorned, and crucified to redeem us. He identifies with us. This is part of the reason why we publicly identify with Jesus through things like baptism and the Lord's Supper. The elements, the Lord's Supper, remind us that Christ's body was broken and his blood was poured out for us. And we identify with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection and baptism. Our old life buried with him in his death and now raised to new life in Jesus Christ because of his resurrection. It's also why we publicly identify with God's people by gathering each week. The people all around us, Brad even said it this morning, need to hear our voices singing. They need to hear our voices praying and proclaiming the gospel. We are a forgetful people, and yet God in his loving kindness has said, hey, look at this. 
I'm going to gather you all together so that you can be reminded of the good news. These things help tell the world around us about the hope that we have. You live in a world that is longing for all of these things, success, satisfaction, significance, security, you name it. And they are just temporary treasures that the world is just filling up their bank accounts or draining their bank accounts to get. But they don't compare to the eternal enjoyment that we have in Jesus Christ, our Savior. So Boaz and Jesus willingly provide redemption. They publicly provide redemption. In encouragement number three, Boaz and Jesus both permanently provided redemption. Boaz redeems Ruth and Naomi and transforms the rest of their life with his kindness and his faithfulness to them. They now have a hope and a future that will be filled with blessings beyond measure. I won't steal Mark's thunder. He's going to unpack some of that next week as we wrap up our series. But Jesus, in his Hesed love, permanently transforms the lives of all who believe in him and surrender to him as the Lord of their life. He transforms the things that we value and worship the ways that you and I interact with people and how we view the circumstances of our lives through the lens of his sovereign rule and care of all things. And better than that, we cannot lose it. You can't lose it. If you've got it, you can't lose it. If we are in Christ, this is our hope that it's signed, sealed, and delivered. Ephesians 1, 1, 11 through 14 reminds us of this. In him, Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, not some things, not most things, not particular things, all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Believer, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee, not possibility of your inheritance, guarantee of your inheritance. And he is with you from the moment you are raised to new life until you meet Jesus face to face. Whether he calls you home or he shows up one day on a horse. You know, you read Revelation, you know one of those two things is going to happen. And that's great news. You can rest in that. No matter what comes your way, good, bad, successful, or sorrowful, again, maybe it is that he ordains sorrowful tragedy to bring about surprising triumph in our lives. It absolutely happens in Ruth and Naomi's case. as the the band makes their way back up, I want us to take a moment to reflect and recall the many moments where God's subtle sovereignty has been displayed in our lives. It's actually really, really good to remind ourselves that like Ruth and Naomi, we've had God working all things in our lives in a manner that will ultimately bring him glory and be for our good. There may be moments that don't always feel so great in the moment, but you can look back on them and see that God was teaching you, he was leading you, and he was conforming you more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. He has also used plenty of people, family, friends, neighbors, coworkers, your church family, to bring this about in your lives, just like God used Ruth and Naomi's life 
and like Boaz and Ruth and Naomi's lives. And we should absolutely thank God for those people and how he has used them to shape us. So that's what I want us to do. Would you just go ahead and bow your heads? We're going to pray. And I know we like to, to stand up and sing afterwards, and that's fine if that's you. But maybe you're here this morning and you're going through a really difficult season and need to be reminded of the goodness of God. Maybe it's through the people that have poured into your lives recently or long ago. Maybe it's the people who are walking with you in celebratory seasons right now, whether it's marriage or a new baby, new job, you name it. Those are all ways that God has subtly shown that he is sovereignly caring for you. So I just want you, as, as, as I pray over us and as the band sings, if you feel like staying seated, man, you know, don't, don't feel like you got to stand and, and sing. Maybe you need some time in prayer or confession or acknowledgement and adoration and thanksgiving of all the ways God has blessed you. But let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are so good to us. There are so many things that we do each and every day that point others and point ourselves, if we're honest, away from you. But in your loving kindness, in your hesed, loyal, covenant-keeping love with us, you promise us that if we are in Christ, we have redemption, we have a hope and a future, and we have the Holy Spirit who is shaping us each and every day, little by little, more and more into the image of Jesus. We also have your people who have walked with us in seasons of plenty, in seasons of famine. And that is all because of your goodness to us. We had a debt that we could never pay, but praise your name, you paid it all. As we sing these songs, as we leave from here this week, help us to be reminded of your goodness and your faithfulness to us. We love you. We thank you so, so much for Jesus. And we ask all this in his name. Amen.